You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends. Welcome. Glad you could join me. My guest today is Charlie Donaldson. He is a serial entrepreneur, having founded or co-founded five companies over the last six years. Today, he spends most of his time at the helm of two early-stage technology startups. One is called Caring Band, which we discuss, and the other is Donation Scout. Charlie lives in the Woodlands, Texas, which is just north of Houston, with his wife and three kids. We cover quite a bit in this discussion, starting with our time as classmates at Sci Falls High School. We were the class of 98, and Charlie was actually the starting quarterback of our class. So we talk a little bit about Friday Night Lights. I can't imagine there's anything bigger than playing Texas 5A high school football under the lights. So I ask about his journey to becoming the starting quarterback and why it is that he pursued track and field for a college scholarship rather than playing quarterback in college. Because old Chuck could throw the pigskin a quarter mile. There ain't no doubt. But I always knew Charlie would would do big things regardless of which avenue he, he chose in life. He's always been very focused and he's had a quiet confidence that I've always admired. So when I asked him as an entrepreneur how would you describe yourself? Give me a couple of adjectives. He, of course, said, well, what's an adjective? <laughs> so he and I weren't exactly battling for the honor roll in high school. <laughs> I kid because I can. We we had a lot of the same classes and we joke about that. We weren't in the, um, the AP advanced placement sort of classes. But as I said, I always knew Charlie would be really successful. And you can tell in the way that he tells stories and talks about his passions that he's razor sharp. From there, we get into what it's like to start a business with your wife, especially when you have a couple of business partners that one wants to wake up dominating the day and the other would prefer to set parameters around when business can be discussed for the health of the relationship. So that conversation is very candid and very insightful, and I really appreciate him sharing that information. Also, Charlie comes from the wealth management world. And he has been able to hold on to some of the high net worth clients that he had when he was working at J.P. Morgan Chase. So we talk personal finance and investing. I get his overall strategy. He talks about the last time he had to convince a client not to do something drastic. And I ask how he invests his own money. Oh, and of course, we do fun questions at the end. One last thing, full disclosure, I am an investor in the wearable and the app that is Caring Band. Not a huge stake, but I do have a vested interest in seeing the company do well. And I decided to do that for a few reasons. One, I think it's a cool concept. I like wearables. Two, I often think we underestimate the power of prayer and relationships. So you may have seen me write on the blog post called 40 Life Lessons. I said that I believe it's never been easier to express gratitude for people in your life. And of course, gratitude breeds happiness. And not just for you, you can spread that joy. A simple message saying, hey man, just want to let you know I appreciate our friendship. 
boom, sent, text message, whatever. You're uplifted, they're uplifted. And any idea that facilitates more thoughts and prayers and thank you notes and just spreading the love overall, I want to get behind that. But you know how it is with investing. You're investing as much in people when it comes to small startups as much as the idea. So I believe in Charlie. I always have. So we're going to do a Caring Band giveaway on Saturday this week. If you want details, please check out my Instagram stories. And that's it. Please enjoy my chat with Mr. Charlie Donaldson. I want you to guess who I had coffee with yesterday. I'll give you two words as clues. Rival and quarterback. That would be Joseph Smith. Yes, yes. So in terms of high school football, it doesn't get any bigger than 5A high school football in Texas on a Friday night. Would you agree? Uh, Absolutely. When we were transitioning from 8th to ninth grade, there were three giant junior highs that fed into our high school. Flyby, Truett, and Cook. Is that correct? I'm not sure. Where did Chase come from? I think they went to Cook. Okay. So you were the quarterback at one of those junior highs. Did you know coming into ninth grade that you would be competing with the quarterbacks at the other junior highs who you presumably played against in junior high? So you knew what you were up against? I did. I did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with the exception of, of Joseph Smith, who went to a junior high that did not feed into Cy Falls. They fed into Langham Creek. And at some point, I'm not sure when this was, Joseph and his parents made the decision, along with several other uh, teammates at his junior high, to transfer neighborhoods and, and feed to Cy Falls. They moved into our neighborhoods that zoned into Cy Falls High School? That's right. So that they could play sports at a better school? Is that what they were thinking? I'm not sure if it was the rationale of a better school or not. Honestly, I don't know the backstory. I know, but I know that they made that decision together. Oh, interesting. They had the best junior high teams for basketball, football, track. And so they wanted to stick together. And so they transferred together. Yeah, it was really three. It was, it was Joseph, Steve Mercer and Terrence Lindsay. And those were the, uh, there were other, there were others, of course, like Brian LeBlanc. If you remember that guy, he was a best eighth grade athlete I've ever seen. He was a dude. Yeah. Yep. He went to the he went to Lamb Creek, and uh, didn't come over to Cy Falls, but but definitely Joseph, Steve, and, and Terrence. Yeah, that was our rival, Langham Creek, and so in ninth grade, you had to compete with at least two other quarterbacks, and then they threw another quarterback into the mix. That's right. Were you confident that you would? start in our class no i wasn't i wasn't joseph in particular was i mentioned brian leblanc being a dude joseph was a dude everyone who was watkins they they ran the table uh pretty much seventh and eighth grade so everyone knew who those guys were and when i learned that joseph was was moving into into our district and going to Cy Falls, I thought my quarterback playing days were over. I really did. And in fact, I I was starting to strategize, all right, where, where else can I play, right? I'll go over to defense. I'll play receiver. And I had one of my junior high coaches convince me not to go that route and to, and to fight, and, and that's what I ended up doing. And so what were your prospects of starting for the varsity? What did that look like? 
uh, as a freshman, zero. Right? They didn't. They didn't allow any freshman players at all to to play varsity. They they wanted you to play uh, with your incoming class and and create kind of that team environment and continuity. And um, and so there was there was no no thought of playing varsity as a freshman on in football at least. And then you had a major league baseball caliber that caliber of an athlete that he actually made it to the big leagues that was the quarterback in the class ahead of ours and then there was a quarterback who was a star athlete in the class above his so were you thinking you would only start as a senior and that would be it going into freshman year I can remember thinking about one thing and one thing only and that was to compete and try and get some playing time as a freshman and against Joseph Smith. And that, that was a, that was a lofty goal. And what ended up happening was we ended up splitting, splitting the time 50, 50, we rotated every series. And for me, that was, I remember that was a huge win and, and one that really kind of defined, I mean, this is so long ago, it was over 20 years ago, right? Um, really kind of defined who I was as a quarterback and um, it was a great experience. You know, ultimately uh, Joseph ended up transferring back to uh, the school that he was originally zoned to and had a great career there. Why did he do that? You know, I'm, I'm not sure you'd, you'd have to ask Joseph. Uh, my, my speculation is there was, there was a clearer path to starting on the varsity level at Lamb Creek than there was at Sci Falls. You know, as you mentioned, the guy ahead of us, one year ahead of us, Jamie Bubella, uh, was a great friend of mine, is a great friend of mine, stellar athlete, football and baseball. Um, that was going to be a challenge to, to upseat him because he was a starter as a sophomore. And so I think Joseph saw that um, as being an issue to where, look, he, he would be lucky to, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, but um, to be able to start as a senior, right? Whereas he could transfer to Lamb Creek and have a two-year run, you know, at a starting quarterback position at a 5A high school. What month and year were you born? I was November 1979. When was Joseph born? Oh, I, think, I know he was a year ahead of us. I think December 78. Okay. I was born in June of 80. One of the things that I was really taken aback by when I first moved here is playing against Watkins Junior High. I sent a picture of their team the other day to a buddy of mine in Louisiana and said, when I moved to Texas, this is what I was up against. They had something like six guys that were over six foot. They were so much older than what I was, but we were all in the same class. And it seemed it seemed like that wasn't right. I mean, talk about getting to deal with the that life is unfair at an early age. Right. In eighth grade, when you're born in June of 80, competing against guys that were born in 78 for a starting job, that that's not fair because that that year of development or year and a half of development is so important. I mean, we're talking about 15 percent of your life at that age, right, that they right. have on you. So did you feel a sense of unfairness when you got to ninth grade and you're competing with guys that were so much older than you? You know, I didn't think of it really at that point as being unfair, but, but certainly intimidating. So they're a year ahead of us in, in our, Joseph got his driver's license in, in, uh, yeah. <laughs> this freshman year. He would year. give me a ride home from baseball right? practice. Yeah. And so there were, you know, going into freshman year, 
there's several 15 year olds, you know, who had beards and eight packs and, uh, <laughs> just, they were men. Yeah. Yeah. That is intimidating. I can remember being a little intimidated myself, but you had that great voice even back then. Cause I remember the coach in football asked you guys to, to do the cadence, like the hut hut. And you all, all of the quarterbacks stood up and did it. And you far surpassed any of the other quarterbacks with your hut hut. Really? I, <laughs> I was like, Whoa, that is a really deep voice. I don't, I, I don't remember that. I do. <clears throat> and this is what I tell my son who, who plays quarterback as well in sixth grade. Um, it's called a stadium voice. Mm. You got to have your stadium voice. Your girlfriend in the stands needs to hear your cadence. Awesome. So did you hold him back for the reasons that we just discussed? We, we haven't, we haven't. Interesting. Um, he's actually young. He's an April birthday. Okay. So he's quite a bit younger than his peers. And I remember my wife and I talking about that when he was in preschool about to go to kindergarten because he was so young, it would be, it wouldn't be questionable at all to, to hold him back. Not like it is anyway, but, but he was so much more socially advanced than a lot of his friends that were even in his same grade. We felt like it would kind of be doing a disservice to him to hold him back at the time. I was that way too. I was mature for my age and it would have been awkward to have to befriend those that were in the grade below me because I was a somewhat right. precocious kid. So that's sure. interesting. So did you have any opportunities to play beyond high school? Well, you know, with football and this is one of the, I wouldn't call it regrets because I'm, I'm happy with the way things happen, but what I'm going to encourage my kids to do is not make up their minds so soon you know, when I was a sophomore in high school, I decided that I was going to be a college and Olympic pole vaulter and football would just stand in the way of that. So I, I wanted to start on varsity. I wanted to have a good high school football career, but I, I really didn't have a interest in playing college football and, and our coaching staff kind of knew that. And so, you know, we had, we had coaches come through from lots of big schools because we had, you know, several D one athletes, you know, at Sci Falls, uh, both the year, uh, our year and the year behind us. And it just was never something that I, I pushed, I, you know, back then, you know, being a five eleven quarterback, you know, even with wheels, wasn't, wasn't cool. You know, the athletic quarterback really didn't, didn't sell as well as it does now. Certainly I was kind of dead set and laser focused on pole vaulting in college, which is what I did. How does a kid decide to become a pole vaulter of all things? The first time I pole vaulted was in seventh grade. To be honest with you, it was, it was a way not to have to run the quarter <laughs> initially. Yeah. So that was one advantage. Um, also, or one, one of the, the things that drew me to pole vault. The other thing was I had some background as a gymnast and I did about almost two years of gymnastics when I was in elementary and, and got used to, you know, dealing with body weight and leverage and momentum and acrobatics and things like that. So I felt like I could be a pretty natural fit, but interestingly in that first, that first day of practice, we didn't do anything pole vault related physically. We went into the video room and we watched a video of Olympic pole vaulting. It was the first time I had seen pole vaulting really like you catch glances of it every now and then, but, but that was the first time I'd seen someone really pole vault. And I remember thinking to myself, there is absolutely no way I'm doing that. No way. But the good news was for me is in junior high and in, 
certainly in seventh grade and really with any beginning pole vaulters, you're not bending the pole. You're not, you know, running from a, a 20 step approach, right? It's stick vaulting. And mm. you could, I could give you a pole vault, right? Or a pole right now and you could go stick vault. Mm. And so that was my, I remember that being uh, my mentality back then. I was like, look, I'll have fun. I'll get out of running the quarter. I'll do some stick vaulting and, and then I'll, then I'll go play football. Right. Cause at that time I was a football player, but that's the beauty of, of progression. That was when I really became intrigued and kind of almost obsessed with the concept of progression. Right. It's really fascinating what, what we can do as humans physically and mentally and progression is something that can happen consciously and subconsciously. And so that was one of the things where before I knew it, I was going upside down. I was starting to bend the pole, something I thought I would never do. Not to say that the rest is history, but there's a lot that went into that. But it's one of those things where like building blocks, it just built on itself. Mm-hmm. And, and before, before you know it, you're, you're jumping um, at, a, at an elite level. I've always wanted to ask you that. How does somebody get into pole vaulting? I used to say a lot that I wanted my kid to be a punter because I can't think of a more low stress, high income job that if I forced him to do it from age four on up, 20 minutes a day for the rest of his life, he would really thank me when he got to be 30 years old. I was dating this girl in my 20s who would talk about a friend of hers. We need to hang out with them, but they're so tight with money and her husband makes all this money. And all I knew about him was that he was a kicker. This girl wasn't a big football fan or anything. And so probably by the third time she mentioned it, I said, your friend's husband, Shane, who does he kick for and why does he make all this money? She said, oh, Shane, uh, their last name is Leckler. And I was like, oh, my yep. God. <laughs> there are just certain careers that are just so fascinating. So you know pole vaulting is such an obscure orthogonal thing that I just, you know, I always wanted to ask you that. And then you went to LSU on a pole vaulting scholarship, right? I did. Were you recruited by many schools to go and be their pole vaulter? Yep. And how does that work? Are you competing with others once you get to school? Like when I was recruited, they said, okay, center field is your spot to lose. Is that how pole vaulting works? No. Typically, typically you have a travel team, right? So the goal is to, is to be on the travel team. And different schools have different rules. But, you know, I, I pole vaulted at uh, LSU and Baylor and each of those schools took three kids or three vaulters on the road. And so that was, that was the goal. You know, you want to first make the travel squad and, uh, and uh, I'd say that's somewhat of a low hurdle, but, but yeah, I mean, pole vault and like many other track and field events, most all uh, are very individual sports. Right. And so I never, I never really viewed competing against other people. It was always against myself. Um, ever, ever, ever since, you know, I started pole vaulting, it was always, it was always against myself. Why'd you transfer to Baylor? That was more of a decision and a realization that I had at LSU and going back to my earlier comment about making up, you know, your mind so young. Um, when I was a sophomore, I started training with a coach that was from Lafayette that had had a story career at LSU. Uh, in fact, his his son, Ar- Armand Duplantis, is the current world record holder in the pole vault. It's pretty phenomenal. How high is that? He jumped 20 feet, two inches. Nice. And what's your highest ever? My highest was 17, one inch. Uh, and I know you have a lot of international listeners, so that's uh, 520 in meters. 
Okay, and I remember you being the second best pole vaulter in the greater Houston area. Is that right? That's right. So how much better was he than you? In high school, Jim, who's one of my very best friends, he jumped 17-3 in high school, and he was the national champion uh, his senior year. Maybe maybe his junior year, too. I jumped 16-5 in high school, and that put me at, I think, at the end of my senior year, I was 12th in the country. And so I got to LSU and, and, and there right away, it was, it was pretty clear that, that I was going to be doing track and field pretty much my waking hours. You go to school and, and go to practice. That reality was, was okay. And the more I, I lived it and, and saw what others were doing in terms of just being a college student, I realized that track and field might not be a big a part of my life as I thought it was for so many years. And, and on top of that, just, I I ended up getting injured that year. And so track and field was taken away from me for a period of time. And it just was not a, not a good feeling. That was probably one of the lowest in, in my life at that point. And so I probably made one of the best decisions and most adult decisions that I could make at the time, which was let's take track and field out of the equation for a second and, and realize or make a decision on where I would be happy just as a student. And, um, and I looked at several schools and, and Baylor was one where I had several of my good high school friends go and I felt like I would be happy there as a student. It also just so happened to have a great track and field program as well, which I could do there. And so that's, that's why I decided to, to transfer to Baylor. You make an important point. I had to medical red shirt because of back problems in college. It is miserable being an athlete and not being able to participate. Miserable. 100%. Because you're not getting the benefits of being a student. You don't get to suddenly join a fraternity. You're not feeling the camaraderie with your teammates when you're not going through the hell practices that they are in the Texas heat or Louisiana heat. You've called yourself a serial entrepreneur. Give me a few adjectives that might describe you. Fearless. Paranoid. What makes you paranoid? With with any idea that you want to turn into a business, and, and I'm speaking in generalities here, um, I'll I'll frame it in terms of the way I think it's paranoia in a lot of respects. One, I'm always uh, concerned with someone doing it better. I'm always concerned with, am I doing justice by, you know, whatever idea, whatever concept that I'm trying to bring to market, am I putting my best foot forward? So I'm always paranoid that there's a, that there's a better way that there's a different approach that I'm not recognizing. So I don't know if that's a, a good quality to have as an entrepreneur, but it's definitely one that, that I have. And, and it's sometimes I, I feel like it does go too far and it turns into, you know, anxiety that, that keeps me up at night. I think it's a balance though. What does the paranoia lead you to do? Is it devour books? Is it stay up till 3 a.m.? Is it not sleeping? Mm-hmm. Is it anxiousness? How does it manifest? Yeah, at its worst and most negative, 
it's it's not being able to sleep. Thankfully, I don't have to deal with that a lot, but there are definitely times where the paranoia and the anxious are are higher than other times. When it's at its best, it just fuels me to be creative and to look for you know other routes, other alternatives, talk to talk to people. I think that's something that I tell a lot of younger entrepreneurs or newer entrepreneurs, and that is to talk to as many people as you can that have been where you want to go and, and don't be afraid about asking advice or asking dumb questions. They'll get less dumb over time. Don't worry about asking dumb questions. It's very common for athletes to be entrepreneurs, but why do you think that is? I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I think about it from my perspective and you know, I draw a lot from my experiences as an athlete and I've, I've always been really good at, at going for it, whether it was whatever, pick the sport going for it was always something easy for me. I was always able to, you know, suppress fear pretty well, not saying that I would never scared. I was scared plenty. Um, but just the ability to control that. And I think you got to do that with, with, with anything entrepreneur related, you got to be able to go for it. And that's something that, that I've always been able to do pretty well. The startup you and your wife, Lindsay co-founded called caring band is a unique concept. Can you talk about where the idea for caring band came from? So my wife and I uh, created caring band after her mother's successful battle with breast cancer in 2016 and after that experience, Lindsay realized how often she thought and prayed for her mom and that neither one of them knew how often that was, especially and specifically her mom. And that, that caused Lindsay to, to think about the idea that there's got to be a way for people that we think about constantly to know that. And it's pretty powerful when you think about you know, when someone tells you that they're praying for you or they're thinking about you, what does that do to your emotional state? Um, especially for the people that are hurting and alone. Um, like her mom, for example, lived about three hours from us. And though Lindsay did a lot with her during that time period, took her to doctors, talked to her probably more than she'd ever had in her life. The reality was, you know, she thought about her so many more times than, than her mom actually knew. And it was literally a wake up in bed idea that Lindsay had. Her mom was wearing the rubber bracelets, like the live strong bands. And so she, I remember, I remember the night she woke up and she said, well, what if, you know, from our iPhone, we can, you know, touch a button on an app and that sends an encouraging message to my mom and her bracelet lights up or pulses. And she knows that someone's praying for it in real time at that very moment. And I got it right away. I love the idea. But at the same time, knowing what it would take to pull that off and not being a technologist, either one of us, not having a technical background. And we're talking about a hardware and a software product here too. Very, very complex. Candidly, I, while I like the idea, I was kind of crossing my fingers, hoping she would just forget about it just because it, the, the road ahead, um, 
was definitely not going to be easy. And at that time I had just, so let's see, that was in 2016. I had been self-employed for two years and I had just committed to a new venture with a couple of other partners in the restaurant industry where we were, uh, we were committing, you know, significant amount of, of capital and, and resources. And that was going to be, that was going to be a full-time focus of ours. Right. And so when she came up with the caring ban idea, it was at an interesting time that I didn't immediately, you know, jump on board with. You were self-employed for two years. Is that when you walked away from a salary two years prior to the idea of caring ban coming to your wife? That's right. Yeah. In 2014, is when I left the corporate world. What were you doing? So at that point, I was working for JP Morgan's private bank, and I had been doing that for five years. That was my post MBA job, post MBA career path. I was an investor uh, on the um, in the high and ultra high net worth uh, private banking group within JP Morgan. And so you were managing people's money. That's right. Do you still manage people's money? I do. So you didn't completely quote unquote retire from the corporate world, you're still doing what you were doing. Maybe you just don't have to wear a suit and tie. Is that? That's part of it, certainly. So when I left in 2014, I started a legacy chief investment office. I'm a solo investment advisor. It's uh, it, it was not my it was not going to be what scratched my entrepreneurial itch. That was one of the reasons I left the corporate world because I always wanted to do something on my own, even though I enjoyed the, you know, the wealth management aspect and portfolio management. And I spent a lot of time, you know, in study and in, in training to do that. I didn't see that as, as my long-term entrepreneurial drive. It was just an easy way to break out from, from the corporate world. And so what I did initially, I had a handful of clients that wanted to continue to work with me. And after that, I really stopped developing that business and I haven't brought on a new client in five years. And so I work with the same, you know, families that I've worked with for the past six years. What's considered high net worth and what's considered ultra high net worth? Uh, every firm has a different threshold on that. It seems, um, I would kind of classify uh, high net worth is five million above. Ultra high net worth, call it twenty five. Have you always charged them a flat fee? I since I started, I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to come back to more of your yeah. investing strategy later and talk more about caring ban because I love the concept. The one way communication really appeals to me. I mean, how many times are you? busy doing something or especially when you're sick and you get a message and you just don't have the energy to respond to someone, but somebody can say, Hey, Hey buddy, just pulling for you. Just want you to know I'm praying for you, whatever. It's like the need to respond isn't built into the concept. That's right. Can you talk about the journey from the night that your wife woke up in bed saying, Hey, I got an idea to now. Like I know that you went through Kickstarter. I have questions. I'm curious about how that comes about. When did you realize that you were going to seek outside investors? Kind of walk me through the process. After, you know, that period of time where I was 
crossing my fingers, hoping she would move on. She, uh, she did not obviously. And I'm thankful for that now, but it took, it took about, I would say it was probably three months or so of her talking and bringing it up and me pushing it aside and and that, that cycle. But ultimately she convinced me to, to at least have some conversations with, with people in my network that, that were in the technology space. And long story short, I had enough of those conversations with a variety of people who ultimately got me comfortable with the idea that we could pull it off. I mean, we weren't inventing anything. Uh, we were innovating, but we weren't inventing. And the tech was low enough to where, you know, to prove the concept, it wouldn't require, you know, an exorbitant amount of capital. And so that got me comfortable with the idea of, hey, let's, no one's doing this. No one's going to do it unless we put it out there. And over that time period, I got really convicted in the idea that this type of communication channel needs to be out there and, and just decided to commit a lot of time and some resources in, in, um, and bringing that to life to see if initially to see if we could validate our, the beliefs and assumptions that we had about the concept. Are there things you learned from your other entrepreneurial endeavors that maybe mistakes that you made that you were able to correct for this, this concept? Not early on, just because, you know, I, other than, you know, starting legacy, I had not really considered myself kind of as a entrepreneur at that time. So there was, there was definitely a lot of, you know, trial and error. I think one early lesson that I learned from caring ban was the importance of 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 your of your partners especially so us my wife and i not being technology so that's kind of the the why technology savvy we we definitely relied on on our vendor partners right and so finding finding you know programmers finding hardware designers and there's a, there's a whole host of trades that go into producing uh, technology, right? So you have, you know, we're producing a, an app and a piece of hardware or wearable, right? So on that, on the mobile app side, you know, there are programmers that specialize in mobile development, right? And then lots of different types of mobile development too. So that meant that we had to have a lot of different conversations and we kissed a lot of frogs before we found, you know, the right, you know, firm to help us at least get started. On the hardware side, we, you know, unfortunately that was probably the, the biggest lesson we learned early on was we, we got introduced to a, to a design firm that was well pedigreed, had a great portfolio, good, good track record, came very well, uh, very, very highly recommended. And we ended up, you know, spending some money with them for a prototype and it was, it was not good. It was not a good experience. You know, we, we, we focused on producing a, what we call a, a minimum viable product or an MVP. And it was, it was not even close. And unfortunately we, we wasted some money doing that. But in that I learned that, you know, what was so important and this is, this is kind of mission critical for all the, the vendor partners that we work with now is they have to have a level of conviction and passion in, in our project. Just maybe not like we do, because no one's going to be as passionate as we are, but, 
but they have to believe in it. And so if I look across our, our team right now, every, everyone has, has a passion for carrying band that early firm did not. How important is social media marketing? I think it's hugely important, right? I mean, you know, it's the amount of time that, that we all spend on our screens is huge. Yeah. I mean, finding a way to do that in, in a, in a tasteful way, especially for a product like caring band, which has such a, an emotional aspect of it, you know, and that's, that's been, that's been a, a somewhat of a struggle on the marketing side too, is because in a way I don't want you to have to buy a carrying band bracelet from me. How'd you decide to go with Kickstarter? Why was it needed? Talk about that, please. Yep. So at that time we had already validated the concept. So, so back, backing up uh, several months, we, in the summer of 2019, we launched a pilot with, we had about, we had about a hundred prototypes or pilot units of the carrying band bracelet produced. And we had our mobile app live on uh, Apple and Google. And so we felt like the, we felt like we had our MVP, our minimum viable product. It, it did enough to be able to validate the concept. And so we started releasing or placing bracelets on people that were going through, you know, variety of health journeys in different ages in the summer of 2019. And over that fall, we ended up placing about 30 bracelets or so. And, and what we saw was un, that it undeniably worked, right? And we heard that directly from those participants and their families we heard it from the network of supporters that were using the carrying band platform to support these people. So that's really at when, when for me, that was a point of no return, right? I, I then felt a sense of obligation and that's kind of when that paranoia started because I felt this huge sense of obligation that I can't mess this up, right? It's too important. It's, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than a startup. It, it, it is a, it is a platform that is, has the ability to really improve people's lives that are going through dark times. And so again, that's when I kind of fully committed in the idea of, look, we have to, we have to take this to market. How Kickstarter comes in is that was really, I'd say the, the final step in, in validation, right? We had already validated that it worked as a product. It worked as a, as a concept. Now we needed to see if, you know, did we have enough there? Did we have enough, you know, was our, how was our messaging, right? Did we have good enough messaging to, to be able to convince strangers that this was a good idea and Kickstarter was an easy way to do that. There are other fundraising platforms or crowdfunding platforms. Kickstarter was appealing because it's a, it's a non-equity based platform, meaning you don't give up equity in your company. And it's one that's probably more well-known um, across the, the myriad of different crowdfunding sources. And so we felt like we would have a better chance of, of converting our followers or new fo- or prospective followers uh, to that platform. 
convincing strangers is a big deal. Like when I started the podcast and you get feedback from your friends, that's one thing. But once you get people who don't know you that like something that you're producing, it really is fuel to keep going. Yeah. I'm, I'm starting to get more and more of that. And it's, it's wonderful. So keep that's the right. feedback coming. Keep the feedback coming for those of you who are using Caring Band. I'm sure it's inspiration for you. Absolutely. So what's next? So next is going to market, right? We, we are producing uh, 2,000 bracelets to start. That's our first mass production run. Where are they made? So a combination of, of onshore and offshore. Uh, the the bands itself and the enclosure that the in, that the electronics fit inside of are being produced in China and the 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 circuit boards and assembly um, that's all being done in Austin or has been done in Austin Texas and the the final assembly and pack out is uh, for the at least the first 2,000 units um, is being done uh, in my house. <laughs> Very cool. Startup life. Who's your ideal customer? That's a good question. What we, we know from experience that, that there are a lot of, um, a lot of use cases in the, the patient care world, right? Whether it's someone going through, through chemo or radiation, um, that's kind of a defined timeline, right? Where it's not a, it's not a perpetual, a perpetual uh, illness. It's something where this person, you know, got a really scary diagnosis. It was, it was a super emotional time, had a lot of people, a lot of network wanting to do a lot of things for them, um, while they go through that journey. And then, you know, hopefully treatment goes well and, and they get better and they move on. Right. And so that most of our, our beta testers kind of fit that, that mold, and so we know it works really well for that group. We had several individuals that were uh, children that just that had um, that had cere- cerebral palsy. And so what we saw with 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 those kids is it was it was a way for them to receive communication that they could understand and they could get right away. They didn't have to read something. They didn't have to talk to someone. We had three kids and their experiences were very similar. We have, we have one, we have one uh, boy that's actually, that lives in Cyprus and, um, and he's, I think he's 17 years old now. And, and for him, what I thought was really cool was his dad travels a lot for work and, and his dad sends him 20 to 30 caravan messages a day just to let him know that, you know, he's away. Jaden can't see him, but his dad's still thinking about him a lot. And so, you know, I think that's been really inspirational to see all the different ways that people are using caring band that weren't on my radar going forward or in, in the past, as we developed this idea, we had one, one uh, particular case, a couple of, actually this is about three weeks ago. Now our, one of our last newer bracelets that we placed was on a little girl who had uh, spine surgery. And so she was in the hospital for six weeks, I believe. And, you know, obviously during this COVID era, there are different hospital protocols. And so while she was in the hospital for six weeks, the hospital would only let one of her parents 
um, stayed with her at the time. And so it was kind of a, a weird, a weird environment, obviously. And so, uh, they, they reached out to me randomly. They found us on social media and reached out and asked if we had any, you know, pilot or, you know, pilot units available. And, and we, and we did. So, you know, we were happy to give, give one to that family. And so they had, they had their six week time in the hospital and, uh, they were using carrying band very well. They, you know, some of the best practices that we've seen for our carrying band wearers is, you know, for their, for the carrying band advocates really to, to promote the the platform to that network because the bracelet can only do as much as the network. Right. So it, it's really all about the network. And so this particular family did a really good job of, of promoting, Hey, such and such has the carrying band bracelet download the app and send her messages every time you're thinking about her. And so this little girl was just getting blown up in a good way constantly. And then after that, her dad called me and we had, you know, 30 minute conversation about, you know, their, their experience. And, and one of the things he told me was uh, this particular guy was a, um, he's a, an air force pilot. And so he's, you know, overseas a lot. And so he thought this was, would be a great way going forward for him to give carrying band braces to his three little girls. And so he can let them know while he's away, you know, that, that they're on top of his mind all the time. And so that's, that's one of the use cases that, you know, carrying band doesn't have to be something for people that are sick, right? There's lots of other use cases beyond that. I think the possibilities are endless on sales channels and, and distribution. One of the things we're doing kind of a strategy in terms of the rollout, and this is, you know, rollout or not, we've done this from the beginning is, which is partner with organizations that are, that are help that are doing good. Like Ronald McDonald house for, for one, that's probably our strongest and, and biggest relationship. The, there are several houses around the country, obviously, and they do, they do phenomenal work and we have relationships with many of them. And so the uh, the Houston house in particular, they're now going to include carrying band bracelets in all of their welcome bags, welcome baskets for new families, and so that's something that obviously is great for us. And we're we're donating those bracelets, right? Because it's it gets them into the hands of people that need them right now. And then you know we know from kind of our pilot that an average of thirty people are going to download the app for every bracelet in the market. And then we also know that you know from you know some polling and, and user surveys that many of those app users know multiple people that would also benefit from the carrying band bracelet. So I think that's a huge opportunity to, uh, to market the carrying band platform to our existing customers. Right. And so, and, and I know you come from a sales background and um, there's nothing, nothing better than, you know, your current customers becoming better customers. Yeah, I'm thinking of when my mom checked into MD Anderson, if she was handed one of those little bracelets and then here, just wear this and then tell your family to download this app. Like if you could sell 50,000 of them to MD Anderson, that would be so awesome. Right. What is an example of a message that is sent? So I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about you. I love you. We have we have about 25 preset messages it's not meant to be a replacement for sending an emotional email or text, right. Or picking up the phone or having a cup of coffee with someone that's hurting, right. We view this as a supplemental way, right. To, to, to add into all the other things that you should be doing. And so it's less about the message. It's more about the action of you doing that. What we want people to do is kind of break from the social norms of, Hey, I'm not going to 
text Brad every day or multiple times a day. Cause that's just weird. And who does that? Right. But we do want you to think about, Hey, I'm thinking about Brad right now. Boom. I'm going to send him. Hey, I'm thinking about you or, or a quick light that you don't have to say anything. It just dings your bracelet. Right. I can do that a few times a day. We want people to think about that's not weird. That's just letting me tell Brad that he's on my mind today. There are a lot of things that used to be weird that aren't weird anymore, like stalking online. If you're going to meet somebody for a date, it's almost expected that you're going to Google their name and and check them out. Stalking almost isn't a problem anymore. What's the end game? Is this a company that has the potential to be acquired at some point? Have you thought three and five years down the road? Yeah. Look, I think I think this is a unique opportunity from a company perspective to do a lot of good and to and to make money. Where my headspace is is that I'm gonna continue to to move the ball down the field cliche um, as long as I can until until there's another group, another company that can do justice by the idea if I can't. And so I kind of think that that's, that's probably what will happen. There will likely be someone to pass the baton to that can really do justice by this platform. I don't know when that's going to be yet. I don't know how many more milestones I can, I can reach on my own. I'm going to go until I can't. So whether that's an acquisition that that's, then that's what it'll be. I, I don't have aspirations of, you know, taking this to, you know, unicorn status you know, a, a billion dollar valuation, but it, it, look, this is what we, we talk about a lot internally. And, and that is our, our mission is our mission, which is, you know, to bring joy to those going through difficult times, you know, by providing their friends and family an easy way to reach out more often. Right. And if we can do that and we can do really justice by that idea, then the business success will, will come. And it's not an expensive product, correct? It's not. We're going to sell these for $39. Okay. And the app the app is free. And that was intentional. There are other ways that kind of in our our, you know, revenue revenue models that will plan to monetize the app uh, but not in kind of the traditional sense where, you know, you pay a subscription or a um, you know, 99 cents to download the app. There's some really cool ways that we can integrate that, that kind of align with our mission of supporting, you know, that particular individual, you know, whether it's, you know, integrating with, you know, certain, you know, e-commerce channels, you know, if you want to send someone flowers also, or, or, a you know, box of cookies or chocolates, we can, we can help kind of facilitate that transaction and do this, you know, affiliate marketing opportunity. Um, there's also, uh, you know, really cool fundraising platforms out there that we can either tie into or create our own. Um, so I think, you know, the, the possibilities are endless from a business case. So you, you and your wife are pretty much in each other's company 24 seven. We are not actually. So my wife is the creator of caring band. No one tells the story better than she does. That said, we've learned a lot about ourselves over the past three years and and about entrepreneurship in couples. And we've learned that we're not meant to um, 
we're not meant to be entrepreneurs together. And it's one of those things where it quite honestly, like it was hard for me to accept because I kind of took that back to, we're just not strong enough. Maybe we're not strong enough as a couple. Right. And so that was a little bit hard for me to, to get grasp of initially, but, um, I've, I've since come to the terms of she is not wired like I am, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective, she's, she's not a go for it type of person when it comes to that. She doesn't like the, 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 all the decisions that need to be made, you know, and all the things that have to, to occur, to go from ideation to market. And so we spent a good amount of time in the early days say early days, like we've been working on this for decades, but, um, early on, you know, battling on, on that very issue. And so the, really the last year it's just been me and, and, and that's kind of directly, you know, related to, you know, the kind of our, our happiness as a couple. How bad did it get? Did this land you in couples therapy? We did. I don't know if it was the if it was the cause, but it certainly contributed. We did. We have, we have been in, 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 uh, in couples therapy. Do you think it's male, female differences that led you to a struggle? Like women tend to make less decisions overall, right? I mean, it seems to me in, in my relationship, in my marriage, when I ask my wife where she wants to eat, it's usually not a quick decision or if you're sitting with your wife at a restaurant and the menu is placed in front of you you tend to make a decision about two or three minutes faster than your wife do you think that's just more of a male female difference when you're in business that men tend to make quicker decisions is that what got you into trouble a little bit i'm not sure if it was that versus the fact that our intensities were completely different I have a tough time stopping whereas I I'm I'm waking up and I'm ready to go cuz I've been thinking about you know new strategies new ideas in in my sleep and so I'll, I'll want to I'd want to talk about them right away with with Lindsay and she was not ready <laughs> and so we had a we had a kind of a mismatch of intensities I think that that's probably the best way to put it and it's something that again you know, cause some strain in the beginning because it, it just, it's hard. We wanted the same thing. We wanted carrying band to be the best it could be, but all the, you know, the, the blocking and tackling that had to happen in between that was just not something we were able to do together. Do you have to put parameters like time parameters on when you're going to discuss business? If you go into business with your wife, I think you do. And that's something we tried unsuccessfully, obviously. But you, you have to, you have to do that because it, look, if, if it were up to me, I would talk about caring ban every waking hour with Lindsay, because it's always, we can always be doing something to advance the project. Right. And that's just not healthy. There's no way. Did she ever regret the idea that she had in her sleep because you guys were butting heads so much. Yeah. That has been said. Mm. Yep. How'd you overcome that? You know, you think you say things right. And he, and I'm pretty sure we both have said that in the past, but when it comes down to it, we both, 
have looked and, and again, we've been in a good place for a while now, but when it got to the point where it was causing a strain in our relationship, one of us would always take it back to, it's not about us, right? We've seen what it can do for people. And so get over whatever nonsense that's going on right now. And let's make, let's make the right decisions for the, for caring van. How long you been married? It'll be 17 years this April. Wow. And you guys are told a lot that you look alike, right? Actually, no. No? no. Oh, God. I think you look like brother and sister. But I think it's more a function of when you're used to seeing somebody with somebody, yeah. they tend to start looking alike over time. But yep. yeah, you we've been are, together a while. You're one of the best looking couples in my feed, and you just so happen to look alike, I think. <laughs> so let's talk more about personal finance and investing. Before I do, though, you mentioned connections when it comes to a startup. Like you can use some of the connections that you have in business and technology. Do you think transferring schools helped you a lot in that regard? Because most of my friends who went to schools in Texas have a lot of connections. Do you think that really helped? Like if you had finished at LSU and then moved to Houston, do you think you'd be less connected? I think I personally would have been less connected. So it helps a lot than you think to stay in state. Look, it's helped. It's helped me. I don't know if that's a blanket statement I would put out there. I, I mean, it's logical for sure, especially, you know, we're working in Texas. You know, maybe that's the same. Like if you're working in New Orleans, it's better for you to have a network at LSU. Right. So maybe may, I could, I could believe that, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I look at both Baylor and, and Rice and my network from both of those schools is, is, is phenomenal. And I, I credit a lot of what we've been able to achieve with, with caring band, certainly because of that network. I've always said that Houston is the town where it doesn't matter who your dad is, that if you're willing to put in the work, you can be successful here. But there are times when I wish I had a chance at one time to transfer to Texas Tech. And if I do have any regret that I didn't do that, it would be because of the baseball prospects of coming out of Texas Tech looks better. And I did have aspirations of playing professional baseball. But also, there's a network here in Texas or in, in Houston where those tech people really stick together. No doubt. One of the things that I didn't realize when I was college aged is that although Texas Tech is 12 hours from here, Ole Miss is closer than Texas Tech. And so I had that thought, like, Texas Tech is so damn far, it's not going to mean anything to you post-college and Houston is hustle town anyway. It doesn't really matter about your connections. But I found that it, it does matter a little bit. Like, you would have a much bigger network. I guess people go to Texas Tech more because it's in-state and you don't have to pay out-of-state tuition, despite it being so far. This is also pre-social media, and you didn't see all the hook'em horns in your social media feed constantly, but you just realize there's a special bond between all these folks that went to the same school. It's a little bit of a negative, like, oh, you know, I wish I had the network. And so anyway, that's just something I think about. Like, even if I had stayed in the conference where I went and gone to a place like Sam Houston or Texas State. I would have those bonds with people that are local. I want to go back to personal finance and investing. When is the last time you had a salary, you said? 
2014. And what were the conversations like in your house when it was decided that you were going to become a full-time entrepreneur? You know, my wife has been on board from day one. You know, she's been, you know, kind of my, my biggest fan as cliche as, as that sounds. And so, you know, she knew it was, it was going to, there was, there was a risk involved and especially, you know, coming from where I was, you know, from a security standpoint. Um, but yeah, it wasn't something that she, you know, balked at or we balked at. It was just, Hey, this is, this is kind of the, the progression. This is, this is the next step in, in our plan. And, and we, we went for it. So it was, it was easier, easier than I, than I, than I thought it would be, um, from kind of a, a family unit, you know, perspective. But you must, but you must have been mindful of your household expenses, right? You had money coming in to cover those expenses. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. And and I knew that we had a cushion to where if the first business um, took longer to produce sufficient income, we would be okay. There was a cliff at some point, right? So it had to work it. You know, it, it couldn't go on forever. We weren't at that level at that point. And so there was a level of risk, but it was not something that that caused us to to slow down. What would you say is your overarching investing strategy? If you had to describe it in three or four sentences. So me personally now it's it's all about it's all about risk. I'm I am as risky of an investor as you can be, I think, with respect to opportunity cost, like where I spend my time. That's one that's one area of risk that I'm investing as pretty much all of my time in two highly risky technology startups and 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 have invested capital along with that time. With respect to the overall picture that's something that that will certainly change over time. Like we're at a period of our lives right now where I feel like, and I'm okay. And my wife is okay with, with taking the maximum risk. And now that, that likely won't be the case into perpetuity. But for now I, I see the, the downside is, is being, being mitigated in a way that the worst case scenario isn't bad. I can always go back to the corporate world. I can always focus on my my wealth management business and go get new clients and do things with that, right? And so I feel like there's a there's a safety net which gives me the ability and the comfort level to take the risks that we're taking now. So does half of your net worth go toward these technology startups or is it closer to 90% or 100%? Yeah, let's say it's closer to 90. Do you invest in any individual stocks? I do not. Just index funds, mutual funds. You have a 401k. I have an IRA. You know, when it comes to public market investing, I'm very much of an indexer. I buy and hold things. I want to buy and hold it forever, right? I don't want to sell. I, I, I think one of the biggest free lunches in the investing world is the ability to 
to hold something forever and not pay capital gains taxes on it, right? So the step up in basis is a huge advantage that not a lot of people consider. And if you're not familiar with the step up in basis, it's just the concept of you buy and hold something and at your death, that basis that transfers to your next generation or whomever the beneficiary is, the cost basis of that particular position steps up to the current market value. So you might have 90% of the value in that particular holding as capital gains for yourself, for that next owner, those capital gains goes away. So it's, it's a highly tax efficient strategy that I think um, you don't hear a lot about in the wealth man management industry because it's hard to charge a perpetual AUM fee for something that doesn't turn over. But you don't charge AUM anyway, right? I don't. I don't. AUM is assets under management. That's right. The only time AUM ever gets brought into the picture relative to fee is I generally set my fee based on about 20 basis points of AUM. And that generates a f whatever that fixed number is. And that's what stays. And, and if we come to a point where I'm doing more work because let's say the, let's say the particular client wants me to start vetting venture capital deals or private equity, then that's, that's a lot more work and time. And, and, and I've had to do that in the past. And so I'll, I'll charge, I'll ask for, for more money. Right. Um, that's, that's, and that's justified, but for the, the investor that that is more or less a, a buy and hold investor. And, and you got to remember too, this is not a, a blanket statement for investing, but every one of my clients uh, have multi-generational portfolios, right? So their allocation is not going to change and it, it shouldn't change because we're not investing for their lifetime. It's for that of their future generations. And so, you know, the, the idea that, you know, my, my work is going to stay, you know, steady and constant through their investing career is just not reasonable. So over time, the time that I over, as time goes by, the time that I spent on that particular client declines. And if you look at it on a fixed fee basis, it does, it also declines as a percentage of, of their portfolio as well, because, you know, generally you know, their portfolios will grow over time. And so my flat, my fixed fee actually declines um, as time goes by. When's the last time you had to talk one of your clients out of doing something? Uh, in March of this year. And talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So in every market correction, you'll have clients, you'll have your own urges, you know, to, to do something proactive because you think it's going to provide a better outcome. And, and so this, this time was no different. And I had a couple of clients that, we're wanting to be um, opportunistic, I would say, in terms of selling equity exposure and buying it back once things improved. And just like my messages have been in the past for other market corrections, the economy and the mar or the markets rather, they never wait for the coast to clear to rebound, right? We we all we all know that, and we've seen it time and time again, and so you know, the, the idea that you can get cute with the market and time is just absurd. And it's, I mean, 
you can't blame investors for thinking that way because you turn on the TV and you see a, you pick the retail broker talking about, you know, gut checks, trading strategies, and you think it's something that can be done. And so you think, yeah, I, I can do that too. I mean, all these, you know, you've, you've probably very familiar with the many common biases in investing and, you know, overconfidence is, is a huge one, right? Everyone thinks they're above average and that's by law can't happen. Right. And so you have that in the ultra wealthy all the way down to the beginning investors. Everyone thinks it's very common for people to think that they can do something about the markets. And so, yeah, this back to your question, I, I did have to have to, you know, be that voice of reason and convince, you know, two particular clients to actually add to equities at that time. Right. These particular clients and anyone in that situation, I, I would argue most investors that have any equity exposure and own it the right way, right? Meaning you own invest, you own equity investments um, and you should. There's a lot of people that shouldn't own equities, um, but the vast majority should. So that's a buying opportunity because you shouldn't own equities as a trade, right? That's long-term savings. And that to me, that means... 10 plus year money. Some people say five plus year money to me. That's, that's money that that's 10 plus years that we're never going to touch. And so when those markets pull back, they're buying opportunities. So you dropped some of your own money. You increased equities in March too. I actually did not. I've been, I have all of my investable assets are in equities right now. And so every excess cash that I have coming in is, is going into, into startup land, going back to that risky part of the portfolio. So I, I view my portfolio as largely venture capital right now. Give me a day in the life of Charlie Donaldson. So the typical day starts with, with getting up with the kids. Uh, right now we're, our kids are, are back in school and Getting up with the kids, which is something that I, I love doing. I, I, I wasn't able to do that for so many years. And so that's a that's definitely a major plus of, of being an entrepreneur and making your own hours. And so get up with the kids. You know, candidly, I, I don't I don't spend as much time with them in the mornings as my wife does. But uh, but I do spend some time and and then I, I go to my computer, you know, the first part of my day spinning the computer is, is with a, my t-shirt and shorts and, <laughs> and a cup of coffee basically. Ditto. And I find it, it's, you know, after, after commuting into downtown for so many years and, you know, just the ability to, to be able to turn it on and, and go as fast as you want is so liberating and productive. I absolutely love it. So I usually spend the first couple hours in, you know, a t-shirt and, and shorts and crank out, you know, emails or whatever I was you know, finishing up from the night before. And then lately I've been trying to get, you know, kind of 45 minutes to an hour of some type of exercise. And then I'll, I'll get back to work. And, you know, really in terms of work, 
you know, going back to, you know, how I, how I spend my day in focus, it's, it's really on, on caring band and, and, um, and the other software startup called donation scout that I work on with Jack. And both of those are full-time jobs and, you know, not to say it, you know, braggadociously that I, because there are definitely days that I don't feel like I do it very well. I feel like the, the balance is good and it, it goes really well with my, my ADD almost of being able to, to multitask. And if I kind of get bored, you know, working on something that I've been working on, I've got other things that I could switch my focus to. So I'm not losing that time and it's worked well so far. What's the biggest mistake you've ever made investment wise? The biggest investment mistake that I've made is investing in, in a restaurant franchise. Was that Pluckers? No, it was Slim Chickens, actually. It's a great product. It, it, phenomenal product, actually. And, and that was one of those things where I kind of doing a post-mortem on signs I should have seen cues. You know, I think one of them was when we started diligencing the, the concept, I fell in love with the product. I really liked it. And I think I let that sway my investment decision more than it should have. But then the other, there were a lot of other headwinds that I didn't fully appreciate because I had not been in the restaurant industry like that before I had done some consulting work as a CFO for a, a large franchisee. So I had, I knew enough to be dangerous in the restaurant space, but I had under really underappreciated the difficulty of bringing a new concept like slim chickens to a major market like Houston, Texas, where there's a restaurant every hundred feet. Great as a consumer, right? I've heard we have more restaurants per capita than anywhere in the world and strip clubs, by the way. I don't doubt it. And so I underappreciated that and the amount of marketing budget and time it would take to really penetrate a market like Houston. We came in with an acquisition of four locations with, with, I had two other partners in the deal and, and the two partners were, you know, pedigreed restauranteurs, uh, older, they had, um, seen success in bringing concepts to market. And so I felt like I was playing a pickup game with Jordan and Pippen and that, that weighed, that had a huge amount of weight in my decision to, to invest. But again, going back to you know, the expectations, you know, what are the range of possibilities and potential outcomes? I underestimated that big time. So yeah, that was, that was by far my, my biggest investment mistake, uh, hands down. How big a loss are we talking about? Six figures. Yikes. How do you recover? The silver lining in that bloodbath is going to be donation scout which is a software company startup that I'm working on with Jack. What do you mean? So donation scout is a concept that I came up with about a year ago while we were still in the restaurant business. So one of the things that we were trying to do to drive sales and to increase our brand awareness was community marketing events. 
So they're commonly referred to as like spirit nights and school givebacks, right? You know, your PTO or your elementary goes to a, a Slim Chickens and then we would give 20% of the sales back to that particular school. It's great for the schools, great for the restaurants. So it's a win-win, but there are such a nightmare to pull off and to manage and execute because you're dealing with, you know, volunteers who have, you know, good natures and they, they want to help the cause, but they've got a bunch of stuff going on the restaurant. They're trying to blocking and ta- block and tackle. And so it's, it's really hard to scale that model. And so actually my wife was helping manage our, our fundraiser event process across all, all of our restaurants. And, and she was doing a good job, but you know, when I told her that next year we needed a four X our activity, yeah, she about lost it because it was such a whip Um, because you know, the emails and the, you know, the calendar reminders and all the manual administrative stuff that goes on. So anyway, long story short, I called Jack and I tell him what kind of problem I had and asked him if he would help me out. I said, I need a simple software solution that can do scheduling. I need a messaging feature. I need the ability to send, you know, PDFs through this one platform. I wanted everything contained and a couple of other features that I didn't think would be a big deal for Jack to develop. And, and as you know, he's a brilliant um, web developer. Yeah. And so he did that. We built a prototype of, of the tool. It was yet to be named and it ended up being so awesome that we decided to make a company out of it. And I started talking to the franchisor at Slim's who I know had the same problem that we did and got some early feedback and interest and they agreed to help us pilot it. So last fall, um, along with our restaurants, the, uh, all the corporate locations for Slim Chickens piloted the software too. And within about six weeks, they had seen enough and decided to purchase the software on a subscription basis for the entire system. So they became our first client uh, within six months of development. Wow. What a story. Yeah. So all that to say is how do I make it back? That's I'm hoping we, <laughs> I'm hoping that's the answer. That's the silver lining in in my, in my heart and painful lessons learned in the restaurant industry. How much are you restricting yourself now if you were to hear of a good opportunity that one of your good buddies, one of our good buddies was was pursuing and he wanted, let's say, a $50,000 or $100,000 investment from you? Would you consider it? Would you be open to it? Or especially if it were something that required a little bit of your time, it wasn't just a passive sort of thing. Would you be open to that? At this point, I would not. Because... You're just, you got too much on your plate. Yeah. Yeah. And do you still have time to attend your kids' events and all that? I do. I do. And that's something that, that's my, that's been my release. That's been my outlet. My, my son is in sixth grade. He's playing, this is first year tackle football. And he's, he's also, he's big into baseball too. So we're playing fall ball as well. And so he's doing something, you know, five nights a week. You know, thankfully with the baseball, it's just Sunday double headers and it's one practice a week. Uh, football is three practices a week in a game. Do you it's teach a, him about money and investing? I do. Yeah. We talk, we talk about markets. We talk about startups. 
it's funny my my kids especially my youngest my my youngest is eight she thinks that everyone just creates their own job it's <laughs> wow that's the sovereign individual a book i'm reading was written in 1997 and it was predicted that would be the future you'd wake up in the morning you'd take a few gigs or or jobs and that would be how you got paid we may be heading that way where everybody is their own little entity especially as we witness this transition to work from home sure right people aren't driving into offices anymore but talk more about that so your 8 year old is interested in markets what what's the most surprising thing that your 8 year old has said that you were taken aback like wow i can't believe she knows that well recently so we've been in our household, we've been talking about caring band for over three years now. So our kids know what, know what it is and know what the journey has been like. And so our youngest, it's, it's more visible because we have, you know, we have some inventory in our house and we're, we've got, you, you look at my game room upstairs, we have a ping pong table and it's filled with circuit boards that are, <laughs> that are about to be, you know, finally assembled. So and, your game is struggling. Your ping pong game. The, yeah, it's, it's weak. It's <laughs> we weak. love ping pong. We play all the time, me and the wife, whenever we find a ping pong table. My wife's good. I, I beat her on average 21 to 16, but it's slowly creeping up to 21 to 17. Do you dominate your wife? She doesn't play. Oh, okay. She doesn't play. So you need me to come over. She doesn't play ping pong. All right. We'll clear that table and get a game going. There you go. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So so with with respect to kind of where we are in the process we're launching carrying band officially next month um, with our e-commerce platform. And so Kate, our youngest has been asking a lot of questions on, on that whole process. You know, how much are we selling them for? How do you know people are going to buy them? Um, Coming up with ideas on how to, um, how to market actually. And this is, this is, was pretty fascinating. So our first small batch of the 2000, we have two, we had 200 bracelets um, at our house right now and they're all white just to make sure the final the final manufacturing process was was the way it should be right and they ended up it ended up being fine so we're actually using those bracelets right now but um but kate kate came up with the idea of of personalizing the bracelets and so our first batch of bracelets went to the ronald mcdonald house in houston and we designed a few bracelets with like flowers, like with these, you know, oil-based markers that it was Kate's idea. She thought it would be a really cool way to introduce the kids and the families to the concept of carrying band with a craft exercise. And Very so that's cool. actually what we're going to implement. I'm like, that's brilliant, actually. <laughs> you want to do some fun questions? Let's do it. All right. In your view, is not wanting something as good as having it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've, I've actually never even thought thought about that before. And I, I, I think it is, I think, I think there's, it's liberating to not, to not have that, that wantingness. Right. So, yeah. You've never been materialistic, right? I mean, yeah. you're dressed better than me now, but you, you don't drive fancy cars, do you? No, I don't. Never have? No. No desire? No, not at all. In fact, my first lesson in that, cause I, I don't know if I could have always said that. I think I, I wasn't materialistic growing up in high school because we we didn't have money to be materialistic. Um, but I do remember growing up wanting a Z seventy one pickup truck, right? That was that was just that's what I wanted. And mm-hmm. so my first job out of college, I started to get a couple of paychecks, and I 
and I bought a Z71 pickup. And I remember a couple months in, like just being aware of like how it made me feel. I was like, this, this is kind of anticlimactic because here I am getting my dream car and it didn't make me any happier. You get acclimated pretty quick. Right. I drove a nice car in high school. You remember what I drove? I don't know. Don't. A Jeep Wrangler. To me, it was like every high schooler's dream to drive a Jeep Wrangler convertible. Right. The white one? Yes. Yep. And it's hard to drive a lesser car once you drive a certain car. But my experience driving rental cars when I would travel for work is like you forget what you're driving while you're driving. Unless you're trying to get somewhere quickly and you have to weave in and out of traffic and so it helps to have something fast. It's like you're either a car guy or you're not. I happen to not be a car guy. People would ask what kind of engine I had in my A7 and I'd be like, I'm, I don't even know, you know? Right. But it's, once you get acclimated to a certain level of comfort, it's hard to go down in car. It's better not to drive a fancy car to begin with. I used to have these little rules for myself. Like I'm not going to drive a fancy car until passive income can pay for it. And once I got to the point where passive income could pay for a Lamborghini or whatever, I wasn't interested in it anymore. I thought that's so stupid to to spend money on that when that passive income can compound on the side. I told I said this on a, a previous podcast that when I was dating as a single person in my early 30s, I wished that I had driven a lesser car. Like I thought it would have been cooler for me to show up in a Camry. You know, you don't know what you're going to attract if you drive a fancy car. So and that was <laughs> that I have all these opinions on on cars and whether you should even have a car payment at all because I think once you once you get to the point in life where you're paying cash for cars you'll never go back you'll you'll just see car payments as silly did you have a high school sweetheart not not really not really I don't remember that you did were you just too focused on football because I mean you were Johnny quarterback you could have had any chick in school I wouldn't go that far but <laughs> I, I was focused on sports I don't know if it's a blessing or or, or what but but yeah, I just, I, I never, I never felt compelled to, to go, um, I don't know, chase girls in high school. And so I think that was probably a good thing. Cause I could focus a lot on, on, on sports and that, I mean, in going back, I mean, I was, so, I was so, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but, but I was so laser focused on, on football and track, hardly anything else really mattered. I was a terrible student, didn't care, didn't care. I, you, I could, you could pay attention and you could pass and make B's and things like that, but didn't care about making A's. It wasn't really important in my family. And so, yeah, I think, oh, that's something that I've probably gotten better. I know I've gotten better with over time is not being so laser focused and tuning everything out because that's just, it wasn't healthy for me. It's funny you're saying that you weren't focused on getting A's and that you weren't that good of a student. You're one of the few friends of ours that I actually had classes with. <laughs> so when a bunch of our buddies talk about, well, did you know her or him in high school? And I'll say no. And they're like, you didn't even have a class with them. How does that happen? And I'm like, well, I was in the lower classes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, like a bunch of these Asian names that were called out for the top 10% of our class or whatever. I didn't know any of them. We would see certain girls out in the clubs and the bars when we were in our twenties and Adam would know all of them. And I didn't know any of them. And I, how do you not have a class with them? I, you know, I wasn't on that level, but you were on right. more on my level. Right. <laughs> and that's how we became buddies probably is we had, I remember English class together junior year. Remember when star farted and it was the 
funniest thing. We could not stop laughing. We got kicked out of class for that because you and I could not stop laughing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you taught me how to water ski. Remember? I do remember that. Yeah. How did you get into water skiing so young? My my grandfather had a lake house on Lake Livingston, and so I, I learned how to ski when I was three, and just it was what we did in the summer, and it was a great break from the traditional traditional sports. I mean, I did that all the way through high school. It was, it was summertime and, and, you know, it got harder, you know, the older you got, cause you had, you know, summer trainings and things like that, but it was always such a good release and, and going to like, it's, it's a huge part of our family now. And something that my kids, they just, they think is normal. They think everyone wakeboards and. That's so cool. So you yeah. have access to a lake house now? We do. Yeah. My, my dad um, has a lake house in Lake McQueenie near New Braunfels area. And so we try and get up there as much as we can. That's great. Yeah. It's so cool to have friends who are into different things if their families are into different things. So, for example, you taught me to water ski. My buddy Chase taught me to hunt. Uh, my friend Brett taught me to fish. And if I didn't have those friends in my life, I would have never been exposed to any of those things. Right. So it's so valuable. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Chase and going back to the school. I remember we we were in chemistry or I think it was chemistry. And I remember on Fridays, especially if we had a Friday football game, I wouldn't do anything that Friday, but prepare for the game, draw up defensive coverages, plays. And I remember Chase asking me one time or saying, he said, do you know, you could, you could do well if you just paid attention. (laughs) (laughs) That is something Chase would would say say that, right? I mean, Chase, it was just, he's, he's, very smart. Right. And I don't, I honestly, I don't know if he tried super hard in school or it just came to him. He always made, seemed to make good grades and do well. Well, he was a year older than us too. And that helps. Ah, there you go. Not to take anything away from him. He's, he is very smart, but it sure is nice to have a little advantage of having a year of maturity ahead of everybody. Yeah. I didn't realize that about him. Dude, just about everybody was a year older than me or older than us. So what your birthday is in 70, November 79. Okay, so Dane Bubella is older than me, and he was a year behind us. Josh Beckett, the second overall pick in the draft, is older than me. He was a junior when I graduated. I mean, that kind wow. of stuff is is commonplace around here. There was something called transition for you guys yep. between, what was it, between kindergarten and first, and first grade? Yep. Yeah, they don't have that where I came from. Okay. Set me back. I wish my parents had known that when I moved here, I also got put into a junior high that was just totally ghetto. Thornton Junior High. I remember that. But it was a miserable experience in eighth grade when I moved here. I remember thinking, oh, I wish I had gone to Libye or one of these other schools. And luckily we moved the summer before ninth grade. And that was just a godsend for me. And that's how I got to know you and Chase and, and all these guys. I mean, it is so helpful to surround yourself with stud guys. So just having the influence of, of each other on each other, you know what I mean? Right. Right. We really had a a bunch of people who were trying to better themselves. And I know some of us chase women and drank a little more than others, but (laughs) it's just really helpful when you think back to how, how many good people we were surrounded by at that age. I really think, that's huge. I mean, now that I'm going to have a kid, I would want to almost select my kids' friends, but you can't do that. Right. But luckily, 
our parents raised us in a way that maybe we naturally attracted each other. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's just so many good people that surrounded us. I, I like to say I wouldn't, if I had a choice, I wouldn't go to any other high school. I just loved the community and how close everybody was. And we all still keep in touch. And I know social media helps that, but yep. there's something to be said for the fact that we all ask about each other. Hey, how's Byron doing? How's Charlie doing? How's Jamie doing? You know, whatever. It's yeah, just, absolutely. It's cool. Well, speaking of you're having a kid and I know your travel, your, you know, your travel uh, aspirations, what does that look like for, for life with a kid? So as soon as my wife feels up to it, we're going to continue traveling. But for the next nine months or so, we're going to live, quote unquote, in New Orleans. So I have an OBGYN friend in the New Orleans area that's going to deliver baby O, baby awesome. D. And then, yeah, we'll start traveling as soon as she feels up to it. We're probably going to start in Europe. We were able to project what it would be like with a kid when we were traveling. So could we stay in this one bedroom once we have a child? Three years from now, five years from now, if we were to have two children, could we stay in this place? Could we stay in a two-bedroom? So people in my family especially are like, don't you think it's time to settle down? No, no. We, we want to be a travel fan. We love it. We're addicted to it pretty much. What I do can be done anywhere. Sure. And I'm not going to stop podcasting anytime soon. The currency I am paid in is messages every day from people telling me how much it uplifts them, how much they've learned from the podcast. I asked a buddy of mine, I was in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago and asked a, a buddy to be on the podcast because he's a uh, chiropractor and I thought he had a lot to offer. And he said, I've learned so from so much from the podcast. I don't know what I would contribute. And I'm like, you don't realize how much you have to contribute. And same with you. I mean, we just grew up, our friends are so sharp, some of them, and having so much success that you really don't realize how much what you've been through, if shared, would benefit other people. So like you were talking earlier about starting a business with your wife and some of the problems that came about because you weren't expecting to be with each other 24-7 and having different means of achieving ends, right? Like you said that you wake up in the morning ready to dominate and she's not ready to talk about business right away. So people benefit from hearing that. Like, oh, that's something I need to consider if we're going to start a business together. So little did anybody know that this this form of media, that people really enjoy it and they can benefit from it. Another thing about me having a podcast is that not being a celebrity, if you just tuned into the Tim Ferriss podcast, for example, or Joe Rogan, you would hear a bunch of celebrities. I get to talk to people like us who are just average Joes trying to better themselves and make a difference in the world and have an impact and raise good, respectable families. And so I think that there's an audience for that. And hopefully I'm helping to find it. So, yeah, I'll be I'll be doing this for a while and you can do it from anywhere. Sure. I actually had a goal of traveling the country to meet people that I follow on Twitter that I would like to have on the podcast. So like traveling up through North Carolina, Appalachia, up to Michigan and meeting some of those people and getting them on the podcast. I think that would be an awesome trip. So we might do that. As it stands now, we've been traveling, staying in Airbnbs for 30 days at a time. As soon as she's ready, we're going to start doing that again. That's awesome. 
Yeah. It's a, it's a dream come true, man. Yeah. You get to live like a local in Prague or Budapest. Yep. It's nothing better. Yeah. The closest, the closest we've ever gotten to that is in 2014, we took our first international trip to Europe. Um, and actually the first time I've been to Europe and, and my wife as well, but we took all, we took the whole family and my youngest was a year and a half at the time. And everyone, all, all, our family, not everyone, but our family thought we were crazy, but it was the best trip ever. I mean, we were there for two weeks and we did, we stayed in, in, it was a VRBO, an Airbnb, but, um, in Rome. And then we spent the last, you know, a week or so in the Tuscany region and we did, you know, cabs, planes, trains, and we, you know, we traveled like Americans cause we had like mounds of luggage. Right. And so we stood out, but it was, it was the best trip. And I'm so glad we took that. It's something we never would have done with our first kid. Just <laughs> so when yours, you know, with yours, your, you know, baby O is going to have the advantage of, of a worldly experience um, a lot, lot sooner than, than most, I would think. Why'd you say you wouldn't have done it with one kid? With our first, we, primarily my wife was so protective, right, mm-hmm. of, of everything. It's your first kid. We were, and we were really young. I was 26 when Ellie, my thir- almost 14-year-old, was born. And Lindsay was 23. And so it was just overboard in terms of, you know, hover parent kind of thing. So traveling internationally, much less in the U.S. was was um, kind of a, a far thought at the time. Mm-hmm. But we we've gotten over that sense, thankfully. Are you conscious about not coddling your kids and exposing them to the negative aspects of life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, going back to our experience growing up at Sci Falls, that, that was America. I mean, if you look at the demographic, right, where, where we went to high school, you had, you know, it covered the gamut of socioeconomic status. And I thought it contributed greatly to like who I am and people that I know it wasn't a, it wasn't a bubble and we grew up in a real environment. And I think that was hugely beneficial. And I want to give my kids the same experience if I can. That's a great point. Demographically speaking, it wasn't homogenous. It was very diverse and you're right. It makes you who you are. High school was great. Social media, net positive or net negative for society. Net positive. When is the first time you logged onto the internet and what'd you do? Oh, man. I have no idea. What was it? High school? So that would have been 97, 98-ish. I have no idea what I did. Mm. Sounds like you looked at boobies. Maybe. (laughs) What is something you've learned from one of your kids that you share the most with people? I love being a dad. I mean, it's, it's been my greatest joy and a husband. Um, I, I would put that there as well, but being a dad is, is, has been by far my greatest joy, you know, seeing my, my son, you know, play football. Um, I got so much more enjoyment out of 
you know, watching his first game and his success than I ever did or remember doing back in the day. Mm. And so what my kids have taught me is that that's my, you know, that's my, that's my happiness. You know, there has been no other point in time, whether it was no other point in time in history where I could, where I can feel like I've been as happy as I am being, being a dad. The over-involved parent, especially as it pertains to athletics, has become a meme pretty much. Do you have to put the reins on yourself sometimes from getting too excited, too involved? And I use the word excited, but also getting on the case of umpires and things like that. Do you have to sometimes restrain yourself? I do. It's gotten easier as, and, and really my son is the only one that's playing sports right now. My daughters are into dance and, and I, I, I like watching them, but I'm not going to go spend time, to, you know, brushing up their, <laughs> their skills. I enjoy watching them do it. Um, but, but yeah, I have much more experience with my son, but it's getting easier. The older he gets turning over the, you know, it, it, it's not so much umpires and things like that. It's more of coaching, right? You're giving your kid to in the hands of someone else. Right. And that's a, that can be a big deal. Um, you know, the last two years on the baseball side, I've had a, a easier time or really the first time ever that I've felt good about giving my son Cooper to the coaches without feeling like I need to uh, protect him from negative training or bad information. Right. So that's, that was, that's been a huge relief. I mean, and, and obviously I think the older they get, the more you get into coaches that, you know, a, you're going to have a professional coach, you know, that's getting paid by whatever their select ball team, or you're going to have dads that are baseball guys. And it's not just daddy ball it can be sometimes, but the older they get, the less likelihood that you're going to have that issue on the football side. This has probably been the, the biggest struggle this year playing tackle football because I've coached his flag football, you know, teams for you know the last several years and so this was the first time that that I was going to give him to a group of guys who I didn't know didn't know their background or skill set and so that that's been that's been a little difficult and and really the way it's worked out now is it it's just so happened that you know the coaching staff on his team you know they're very defensive heavy and and focused and so um, while I wasn't planning on being an assistant coach or being involved, I, I am. So I'm personal quarterback coach, <laughs> if you will. And they, they, they appreciate it. If somebody dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? What we've done in the past with, you know, whether it be bonuses or, you know, certain, you know, sales of assets or, you know, anything like that is, is we've, we've given 10%, spend 10% and save 80, save or invest 80%. So we would do that. And I would say with that 80%, you know, given the fact that <clears throat> I'm still in this, you know, going back to that risk, risk, risk discussion, um, a good, a good majority of that remaining 80% would probably fun carrying band. I've always had this theory about quarterbacks that a lot of them are religious because they must feel overwhelmingly blessed because of all the kids. We graduated 
with about 560 kids. We started our freshman year with almost 1,000, I believe. Yeah. Just about every kid would love to be the quarterback. I mean, I played the outfield. That's one of three, one of nine on the team. You're not necessarily a captain or anything any more than a pitcher or a shortstop would be, let's say, or a catcher. But the quarterback is like everybody's dream position, it seems like. Anybody who plays sports, if they had their pick, unless they're a big chubby kid or something, that's probably going to end up being a lineman. Your better athlete, your captain is generally the guy who can throw. The, the leader is the quarterback. So I've always had this thought after the game when they're interviewed and they just start thanking God, I always think, you know, I'll bet you he just feels overwhelmingly blessed. One of the reasons I was really religious, I was raised Catholic when I was a kid. I wouldn't say really religious, but I, I devoted a lot of time to prayer. And it was a lot of time in thanks because I was a good athlete as a kid. Did you ever feel that way? Like, wow, I get to be quarterback. I didn't do anything really to have this natural talent. Of course, you put in the work once you recognize that you have a talent, maybe, or you're pushed by your parents or coaches. But did you ever get that sense when you were young? Like, wow, this is so awesome. I get to be the man. Look, I did. I, I felt very, very blessed with the abilities that I had and for the opportunity you know, to, to play quarterback, which is a position I loved. I don't, I don't tie that back into my faith, although I was very thankful and it was, a you know, all, all of our skills are, are blessings. Give me an idea of how many yards you passed for senior year. I know I should probably know, but I don't know, maybe 14 or 1500. It wasn't, it wasn't a lot. That is a lot. You know, not in today. No, really? Okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, talking about my son so he had his first tackle football game last saturday he threw for 300 yards and five touchdowns and two point two two point conversions <laughs> i never had a game that I, I may 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 have broke 200 a couple times so we just we, we we you know in our case we ran a particular offense that and we had a running back that was you know top in the country and so between he and i we put we rushed for a lot of yards too uh and yeah, we just unfortunately didn't uh, have that opportunity to, to air it out like like I would have loved to. There's always different levels. So the small town where I moved from, we they barely threw the ball at all. And so it was nice to attend a high school where they threw the ball. It's more exciting to watch a team that throws the ball a lot. So I remember you throwing for 200 yards and, and being impressed. And maybe that's not a lot nowadays. I don't know. But our running back was Kenny Hyder, right? He was recruited yep. by the University of Texas. And, well, recruited by many, yeah. yeah, everybody. Speaking of different levels, he got to University of Texas and transferred right. because of the other players that were probably going to p play in front of him. Yeah, a guy by the name of Cedric Benson. Cedric Benson, who died recently, yep, right? He did. Yeah. Motorcycle accident. That's incredible. Yeah, I see him now on Facebook. He's like a Vegas VIP concierge. Or something. That's right. He's always posting pictures with 13 different women. Yeah, which is why I never call Kenny when I go to Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> cool. If somebody gave you $100,000 tomorrow and forced you to invest in three companies, Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, how would you allocate the $100,000? A third, a third, a third. But you take no chances on individual stocks, huh? I don't. I don't. And, and not not to say that that's a bad thing. I just 
I, I feel like I know too much to know better. And it's just a, it's less than a coin flip. In my opinion, you're going to get some right and you're going to get some wrong and it's going to wash out and you might as well just own the, own the market. Own If you're very, if you're bullish on a particular sector, long-term buy the sector index, forget about trying to pick a winner. Um, who would have thought Exxon would be trading the way they are right now. Right. It's just, it's a, I think it's a loser's game personally. When I was in my twenties, my dad and stepmom knew that I was into investing and she has worked at Exxon for maybe 25 years. And so she could buy Exxon stock at a discount. Mm -hmm. And so in my twenties, which was 2000 to 2010, I think maybe in 2004 or five, they started buying like a share for me for my birthday. So I have like five or six shares. It has done nothing. It's worth less than when they started buying it for me. But up until that point, it was believed that that was your ticket to retirement. And many people who worked at Exxon a long time have retired with millions of dollars. But yeah, 10 years ago, it stopped moving. You've you've made only dividends. Whereas if you just invested in the an S and P five hundred index, let's say it's up about two hundred and eighty percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what they say. You know, extreme wealth is built by concentration. You know, and some of that is is luck. You just happen to work for Exxon and had this crazy, ridiculous pension, and you retired at the right time. Um, others, it's you know, you're you're concentrating in you know a private company that you've been developing for you know thirty years, right? And that's where you've spent your your capital, time, and money, right? But to keep that wealth, to stay rich, stay wealthy, kind of your stay rich money, that's achieved, I believe, through diversification. And that's it's not a personal, it's not a unique belief. Yeah, I'm surprised, though, with your knowledge that you don't become like a Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger type where you read all day and then you concentrate your your bets on a few companies like Apple and Coca-Cola as Warren Buffett has done. Yeah. You know, there's actually a, a good paper. Um, I'm trying to think. I'll, I'll butcher this. It's, it's something like decomposing Buffett's return. I'll send, I'll send you an email. Anyway, kind of goes back and looks at all of his, his trades, um, private and public stocks over his career. Right. <clears throat> and really, I mean, no one's disputing and certainly I'm not, he's, he's one of my favorite. He's definitely my top two favorite investors. I love the way he thinks. I love, I mean, just so much about him. I think what separated him from the crowd, you know, really for the last five decades is his unwavering belief in his ability to select companies and stick with them. Right. So his conviction is unparalleled. That's, that's one of the things that I I think made him who he is today. And the second is he's one of the, the early investors that, that figured out levered investing. Explain. So, so he's, you know, through, you know, one of his longest, held positions is, 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 is in the, in the, um, uh, his insurance company. So Geico, right? So the billions of float that goes along with an insurance company, right? So people pay you premiums and you pay them, right? You pay out your, your damages and things like that. So there's, there's investable, large amounts of investable capital. It's free money. Right. And so he's been doing that. So it's basically levered investing is what he's been doing. So by virtue of that, as long as you have the time horizon and, you know, and he takes, you know, very, uh, it's, 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 it's changed over the years, but you know, when he originally started, like he, he would take very conservative, very 
predictable type companies and he would put leverage on them. And, and that's where the vast majority of his outperformance came from, not his stock selection, not his ability to turn around a company. It was, you know, it was, it was a little bit of that, but it was largely due to levered investing. That's a good point. And had he died at 58, we probably wouldn't know much about him because most of his wealth has been built due to compounding, right. which happens gradually and then very suddenly. Absolutely. Yeah. I love when he talks about, you know, simple, simple things like getting a haircut, right? He puts that in terms of a future value on that $30 haircut, you know, into, you know, a 50 year investing career. That's <laughs> influenced that's me. He, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Same dollar amount, but you're forced to allocate $100,000 toward gold or Bitcoin. How do you divide that up? You're forced. <laughs> I know you may be opposed. I'm but forced. Assuming you're opposed, are you opposed? And gold is pretty much like digging a hole in the ground. And To me, and, and, and this is going back in the context of I'm, I'm forced because I, I don't understand Bitcoin enough to have a real opinion on it. I have... I've views of this is not anywhere close to broad market adoption for this to be a thing. I d and I don't know if that's, if we're five years away from that or 50 years from that, but it's going to have to be broadly adopted in order for it to be a long-term thing. But I, I would put that into my speculative, Hey, let's have fun. So I would say 25% Bitcoin, 75% gold. Have you ever felt an obligation to learn more about Bitcoin, maybe because of your clients asking about it? No. No. I think just so happened the few clients that I have are you know, very conservative investors. They've taken lots of risk in their, in their past and building up their wealth. And now it's all capital preservation. So they're, they're not interested in taking risks on new things and they don't need to. Do you have a favorite book? I do not. I do not have a favorite book. I kind of knew you were going to ask me that question. So I was, I was thinking about some of the books that I've, that I've read in the past that I've, that I still kind of reflect on and, and that had changed my thinking. One of the, the first books that the earliest book that I can kind of remember of, of having something that I kind of take through and still think about to this day. And I know you've, you've mentioned this before. I've heard you on your podcast, but, um, think and grow rich, you know, Napoleon Hill, but just the concept of the, the most powerful force in the world. Right. And that's, that's kind of your sexual drive and sexual desire. Um, and, and using that in non-physical ways. Right. So, I think about, you know, the intensity at which I pursued my wife, you know, back in college, right? There was nothing else that was ever close to that, right? In terms of pursuit. So I think about that and I've thought about that since reading the book, you know, and whether it's career or, you know, these startups or, you know, or you name it, but it's just that pursuit of kind of channeling that and thinking about that pursuit in terms of, of how I pursued Lindsay so many years ago. It's so interesting you say that because you were talking about the different approaches that you have to business. She's never experienced what you did for her in pursuit of her. She's Women don't do that. 
Right. So that eye of the tiger isn't something she's experienced. She probably can't relate to it. Sure. Talk more about that. Were you, did you run the risk of going too far or being too assertive in your pursuit or your sole focus of wanting to, to get the girl? No, I don't. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I, I was fearful of going too far. In fact, I, I was going to go as far as it is, as, as I needed to go. I mean, she, I remember, this is so long ago. She, um, we started dating about a, a month before I graduated at Baylor and she was a couple years behind. And so great time to meet your future wife. Right. <laughs> and so she actually broke up with me after that summer because she still had two years in college and I was going to Houston to work. And at that point I knew that she was my person. Like mm -hmm. I was, I was convinced I was already there. And so I was going to make her, I was going to make her mine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, she, she tried, she tried to break up with me, but I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take no for an answer. <laughs> So what did that entail? Going up there every weekend? Pretty much. Yeah. And Which you, in full disclosure wasn't super hard because a lot of my buddies were still in school. But yeah, I, I made sure I was there. I made sure my intentions about how I felt were towards known. her were very known. Mm. And so how long did you wait to get married after she got out of school? Not very long. Mm. Yeah, we we ended up dating for a year got engaged and then we married literally as she was graduating. Didn't you go on a trip with a girl that we went to high school with through Central America? Yeah. Yeah. We, Tell me about that. Yeah. So that was with Brittany. Brittany Bruns. Yeah. Brittany Bruns. Yeah. So we went with um, some other Baylor, Baylor folks uh, after, after Baylor and it was a, it was a phenomenal trip. That's when I, I went to Costa Rica for the first time, learned to surf for the first time, fell in love with surfing. And it was one of those experiences where, you know, I've never traveled like that before. We, we were staying in terrible, you know, $4 hotel <laughs> type of rooms, but the country's so beautiful. Like it doesn't matter. And so it was hard to come back, but, Honestly, and I tell Lindsay this, this is where I, this is the trip that I fell in love with Lindsay on and she wasn't even there. Mm. Right? You missed I, her so much. I, I was on that trip and I couldn't think about anything else, but her, even as much fun as I was having surfing and enjoying Costa Rica, I couldn't get out of her, get her out of my mind. And I remember every town we went to, the first thing I would do is find a, um, one of those internet cafes. <laughs> And I would, I would send her an email. Hey, this is what I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about you. Even one of our stops, I, I, I had one of my buddies that was still in Waco go put flowers on her car because I knew she, you know, I was on a trip with, with Brittany, um, who was introduced to Lindsay as, you know, one of my best friends growing up and we had a great friendship and we still do. Um, she actually lives in Costa Rica now. Well, she met her husband on that trip, right? No, she, no. not that okay. trip. It was a second trip when she, when she, um, she ended up going back to Costa Rica about a year after that to learn Spanish and she just never came back. Wow. <laughs> and so she met Jay. Um, I don't think right away, but you know, within that first couple of years, 
and then they got married and have a beautiful young boy. He's awesome. His river is his name. I've met him. Yeah. Guess who taught me to surf? No way. Brittany Bruns. Yeah, we awesome. went to see her just outside of Tamarindo, right? Okay, yep. Yeah. yeah. Adam Greenbaum there. and I went down there. She's got a cool setup. Yeah. So that that was part of it. You know, I I knew that, you know, even though, you know, I tried to explain to, you know, to Lindsay, who we had been dating for about a you know, six weeks maybe at the time that nothing's going on. That's Brittany, don't worry about it. You know, she was like, Yeah, sure, whatever. She's, you know, a beautiful, yeah, beautiful girl. But, you know, I like I said, I I couldn't do anything but think about Lindsay. So I wanted to make sure she knew that. Do you have a favorite podcast? I think the podcast that I've listened to the most episodes is How I Built This, Guy Ross. Are you familiar? Yes. It's a great. Is that NPR? NPR, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, most recently, I've I've listened. I've been listening to a lot of Tim Ferriss lately. I love his. I love his work. I love his conversations. Reed Hoffman has a good one too. Mm. I'm a co-founder of LinkedIn, or one of the founders of LinkedIn, and storied venture capitalist. Been listening to a lot of A Man Overseas lately. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Doing a phenomenal job. I think I was. I was telling Brian Byron on the way down here that, you know, you and I knew each other decently well in high school and seemed like we would run into each other. Um, you know, certainly once we all graduated and moved into Houston, but I'd n- not known that you had this side of deep thinking and elect- intellectual uh, power, you know, that you do. And so that's been really cool to, to listen to and see. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, now that I think about it, I mean, I just knew you're you're Brad, and you're you know great athlete, and you know we we had you know we had some classes together. You definitely weren't. I mean, and I, I don't think I was the same way either, right? I, I wasn't. No, I think we've surprised people. Yeah, I think you and I were very similar in that regard. I I I didn't care about you know being the the loud guy or the popular guy. Kind of just did my own thing. Quiet determination, I would say, is what we have. Yeah understated maybe thank you overrated or underrated maria bartiromo over jim kramer over mark cuban under randy yost under (laughs) sean watson under bill o'brien over aaron Rodgers. that's a tough one because it's changed for me Mm. Elaborate. Probably over now. Who's the best quarterback ever? For the longest time, I w- Joe Montana was always my guy. I loved everything about about him. I think he's probably still still my favorite. The Drew Brees. Drew Brees has gotten himself he, in some hot water lately. How so? He made some political statements in an interview, a Yahoo uh, interview recently. And then he's done some things to try to make up for what he said. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Well, just on a quarterback, from a quarterback perspective, he definitely uh, is inching his way up on my, on my favorite list. Opinion of Tom Brady. Hard to argue with a guy that as productive as he has been right. Success wise. I sincerely want him to do well in Tampa, Tampa Bay. If he doesn't, 
then I'm afraid there's going to be this big asterisk by every record, every Super Bowl he has. Because of Belichick? Because of Belichick and the system. Interesting. Dude, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming down here. Yeah, absolutely. This is great. Please tell listeners how they can connect with you online. Sure. So you can find us uh, on the Caring Band site at caringband.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. We have uh, three social media channels. So on our uh, Facebook, it's the Caring Band. Uh, Instagram, I believe, is the Caring Band as well. And on Twitter, it's Caring Band. And then I'm on Twitter as well as Charlie. Charlie Donaldson. Thank you, brother. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. Friends, thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode with Charlie, please copy the link and share it with a friend. To further support the show, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 